This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Welcome to A Conversation with History. I'm Harry Chrysler of the Institute of International Studies. Our guest today is Samuel Bowles, who is research professor and chairman of the program in behavioral sciences at the Santa Fe Institute in Santa Fe, New Mexico. He's a prolific writer, having published articles in many magazines and journals, and his most recent book is The Moral Economy, Why Good Laws Are No Substitute for Good Citizens. Sam, welcome to Berkeley. It's great to be here, Harry. Where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in uh, New Haven, Connecticut, but I was raised pretty much all over the place because uh, uh, my parents uh, lived uh, different parts of the country, Washington, D.C., during the Second World War. Uh, I spent a lot of time in India as a kid, going to school there um, and uh, other parts of the world. Your, your father was U.S. ambassador to India. And before we talk about that, uh, tell me what, uh, what you learned from your parents uh, uh, and how they informed your perspective on the world? Well, I would say, Harry, that my mom and my dad were liberal Democrats. Uh, they, uh, they were secular. They were not religious people, but they had very strong values about uh, how we ought to interact with each other. Uh, and uh, they passed those values on to me very strongly. And was there a lot of discussion about politics and world affairs around the dinner table as it moved from place to place? Well, I think you could say that you couldn't really talk about anything else, <laughs> even from a young age. That's what, that's what got you uh, airtime, is to have an opinion about something. And so I've been doing that ever since I was pretty young. And how old were you when your father was U.S. ambassador in India? I was 11 when I went to India and 13 when I came back. I missed junior high school. That wasn't a bad thing to miss. <laughs> <laughs> Especially if you were preparing for the new economy. Yeah. Uh, and how, how did the experience in India uh, affect you? Well, you can imagine. I, I came from a small town uh, in eastern Connecticut. I went to an elementary school that had four rooms. Uh, I was starting off in a high school that had never sent anyone to an Ivy League college, despite the fact that uh, we were right next to Yale and Brown and Harvard and so on. And uh, so uh, I was, um, when I went to India, uh, it was obviously shocking to me. I saw people literally in the process of dying because of their adverse circumstances and lack of material support. Uh, and uh, that isn't something I knew about. I mean, in my hometown, there were exactly two poor families, and everybody knew why they were poor. One had an alcohol problem. One had some mental difficulties. We we all we knew we knew all that because we went to school together. And um, uh, then all of a sudden, you go to India, and uh, it seems like everybody's poor, or the vast majority of people are poor. Uh, that had a huge impact on me, but also. Uh, I didn't have any American friends uh, there because uh, I went to a school in which my two sisters and I were the only uh, non-Indian uh, kids there. And uh, so, 
you know what 11-year-olds are like. You make friends pretty easily. And, you know, I was pretty scared the first day I went to school because I thought, well, this is a little strange. Uh, <laughs> but it wasn't strange at all. And uh, as soon as I learned that uh, a football was round uh, and instead of being like a football in America and, you know, got over some of the things, you know, I, I made a lot of friends. And, you know, having close friendships, your only friendships, be with people from a different culture Obviously, I didn't think about that at the time. These were just my friends. But uh, thinking that way about people who actually are quite different from you in some ways really, really helped a lot to open my eyes to the world. And after, I mean, I lived a lot of time in Africa, too, in West Africa. And I think just growing up with people who were of a different religion or different point of view just made a big difference to me. Yeah, given what your father was doing, there must have been a lot of interaction, even though you were one, with with notables both in the Kennedy administration and in Indian politics. The first time he was ambassador there was under Truman. Uh, and uh, yes, he, he and my mom uh, did become friends with a number of notable Indians. And I remember very well going to tea at Jawaharlal Nehru's home. He was prime minister at the time. Uh, and, of course, even at age 11, he was one of my heroes. I'd read all about him. And I was so uh, amazed when he asked my sister and I, wouldn't we have, have a look around the house? We're having tea in the garden. And he, he took us even to his bedroom. And on the table next to his bed was a, was a, was a, was a picture uh, of a poem. And the poem was Robert Frost's. And it was, it was the final passage and I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. And, of course, coming from New England, which is where Robert Frost was from, I was so struck by that, that this guy from India, who was a very erudite man, uh, uh, chose to put that on his bedside table. And when my dad, my late father, uh, wrote his memoirs, uh, the title of the book is Promises to Keep. Um, uh, which uh, actually I reminded him that Nehru had had that on his bedside table, and my dad was a big New Englander, so he liked it a lot. Uh, and uh, your father was also in the Kennedy administration. Did he go back to India then? Yeah, he, but you were already off to school yeah, by then. Yes, I was, I was in college at the time. Um, I, was, I was actually in grad school at the time. So, so th- this is a, an indicator of... Uh, in a way of your future research, because your your research and your writings are very much embedded in a multicultural perspective. You re, you really uh, emphasize what we have to learn from other places uh, in the world. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm an example of that. I learned a tremendous amount both in Nigeria. I also spent a good amount of time in the Soviet Union uh, under communism and. Uh, uh, yeah, it became part of what I knew and what I knew how to do in the world. But the thing I think which affected me most was, um, imagine like I'm going to this school. The school, by the way, doesn't have a single building. It's just old army surplus tents. And there's 2,000 kids. And, and this is where now in, 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 India, India, in, in India. India, yeah. It's called the Delhi Public School. It's now a famous school. At the time, it didn't have any buildings. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, I pretty quickly understood that I was actually pretty average, um, and uh, I was average in in sports, and 
I was maybe not even average in some of the academic subjects because, as I say, where I'd gone to school was not a great school uh, in, uh, uh, in, in my hometown. Uh, and, um, I mean, I'd been interested in other things, really. Uh, but I, what I found is I was, you know, I was kind of okay. And then it struck me that when I went to school and came home on my bike, what I saw was abject poverty. And one day I went to my mom and I said, listen, um, I'm, I'm doing okay in school. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. But I'm really not, I can't do anything really better than most of the Indian kids. Um, and how come the Indian people are so poor if we're just the same as them? And uh, now that's a question that's, you know, it's kind of an interesting question from an 11-year-old. But, mm-hmm. of course, there it was. It was staring me in the face. I was average. But they were, I mean, let's get the facts straight. Americans at the time were 20 times richer on average than Indians. So what could make up that difference? My mom, who was a former social worker and never lost an opportunity to teach me a lesson or two, she said something about colonialism. Uh, I don't recall exactly the answer. I don't remember thinking it really explained very much. Today, I think it might explain a lot more than I did then. But um, that question stuck with me. Uh, I kept asking it in various ways, asking other people. And uh, after, I mean, after a long time, that is, uh, after I graduated from uh, undergraduate uh, college. And you uh, went to Yale. I, I went to Yale. Um, I didn't go to grad school after that because I was thinking of going into law, but I wasn't sure that was for me. So I took a job teaching school in a remote part of Nigeria, the far northeastern part of Nigeria, on the edge of the desert. Uh, and um, when I was there, I, of course, was once again confronted by the, uh, the vast poverty and deprivation of people who, uh, I mean, there I was a teacher, and the students in my classes were extremely talented people. Uh, and uh, so once again, I asked myself, mm-hmm. what's going on here? And one night, I remember exactly when it was, I decided I'm not going to be a lawyer. Uh, I'm going to be a teacher. I didn't decide to be an economist. I decided that I wanted to teach because I was really enjoying the classroom a lot. And um, I had I had, had not a good experience with economics as an undergrad. I'd taken one course in it, and uh, it had been more or less like an immunization shot. Uh, I got a little sick because of that course, but I knew I'd never come down with a disease. So uh, I was essentially immune to economics. But my experiences as a young man in my early 20s convinced me that I'd better study up on economics because that was pretty important. And um, I also thought at the time the kind of questions I wanted to answer were the questions that had been asked by Karl Marx. And uh, I understood he was kind of an economist of some kind, so I'd better read up on economics and see if I could understand the world. So that's how I got into economics. And and uh, you went to Harvard to do your graduate work, and, and I have the sense that you saw the importance of economics, but also of the institutions that that surround uh, uh, the, the the focus on uh, economic institutions? Well, that's putting it mildly. After my, well into my first year, uh, I was very disappointed 
because I'd gone there because I wanted to understand the way the world worked in terms of the inequalities and the kinds of deprivations that, that people had. Uh, and I wasn't getting any of that. Uh, and I uh, decided that I wanted to study something else. And I was so busy as a grad student, I wasn't very well prepared, that I didn't really have time to apply to any other programs. Um, I did go over to the anthropology department at Harvard. I was very strongly discouraged from uh, even taking a course or two there. Uh, by the economics people. By the economics people, yeah. <laughs> they, they didn't think this was really a very I wise see. way to spend, my, corrupted. to spend my time. <laughs> And so, you know, then I, I, I just kind of stuck it out, out of inertia. Um, and so I became an economist. I got a degree, and uh, I was fortunate to get a job at Harvard. And um, so at, at that point, I was, I was uh, more able to chart my own course and actually teach my own courses. I was allowed to teach a course uh, on inequality over some opposition of my colleagues who initially mm -hmm. said it wasn't economics. Um, so then I was, I was, um, I was off and running. Uh, at Harvard, were there any mentors, uh, either in economics or outside of economics, that were congruent with the kind of the bug that you had? Yes, from, yeah. there absolutely were. Uh, and um, the first person I, I taught with was Vasily Leontiev, uh, a Russian, uh, an inventor of what's called input-output analysis in economics, a mathematical technique, which I had used in my dissertation. Uh, uh, a, a second was um, Alexander Gershenkron, mm. uh, an economic historian. Uh, and these were these people were guiding me, supporting me, particularly Gershenkron. I was very interested in economic history. Uh, Another person who I uh, learned a tremendous amount from was Simon Kuznets, uh, considered to be an economic historian. Now, the amazing coincidence is all three of them are Russians, and uh, they were great intellectuals. They were the people who I thought really um, were what, what I imagined it would be like to be a scholar. Um, and uh, I wasn't that impressed with the other members of the faculty, um, but uh, I learned a lot there. Um, but I, after having such a good start, um, I almost left economics uh, because uh, I realized that most of my colleagues were not addressing problems that I thought were what economists should be addressing. Uh, and by that time, it's late 60s, uh, 68, um, I'm concerned about how schools are organized, uh, why, why they essentially do so little to enhance people's ability to lead a flourishing life and often seem to be so repressive to the students and to the teachers involved. I was very concerned about uh, war. Of course, the Vietnam War was uh, going on at the time uh, and always about inequality. And the, th the thing that happened to me that um, both almost drove me out of economics but in the end really put me back was um, I had known Dr. Martin Luther King because I'd been part of an organizing campaign against the Vietnam War. And we had asked uh, Dr. King, along with Benjamin Spock, to come and uh, sort of kick off our drive, the, the uh, baby doctor. Um, 
And uh, we had them going down the street, knocking on doors and so on. And during that time, I, I, was, uh, I was taking Dr. King around. And uh, so he knew that there were some economists at Harvard that were interested in the kind of issues he was raising. Uh, you know, Harry, at the end, towards the end of his life, he was organizing the Poor People's mm-hmm. March. And it, he was shifting not from just civil rights but to economic rights. Uh, and so he, he wrote or his staff wrote and asked – if, um, if I could answer a bunch of questions about the economy as kind of background papers for the march. And I was thrilled. You know, this, imagine, can you imagine Dr. King's going to ask you to do something about this, um, you know, to provide some scholarly background. That's why I studied economics. And finally, I was going to get to do it. So I got the letter and I opened it up. And I was very, feeling quite proud of myself that I was going to get to do this until I read the questions. And I read them, and they were damn good questions. That's the good news. The bad news was I didn't have a clue about how to answer them. Mm-hmm. I was incapable. I didn't even know where to look. Uh, nothing in my economics training had given me uh, the background that would say, okay, here's where you'll find that out, and here's how you might approach mm-hmm. that problem. And I was, I was teaching courses which were very heavy in mathematics. I mean, be called mathematical economics, I guess. Um, and uh, I, uh, I remember uh, being very ashamed, and uh, uh, I thought, well, you know, this isn't what I wanted to be. Um, and then I, I said, well, wait, I've got a lot of friends, a lot of grad students working with me, a couple of young faculty members. Let's put a group together and see mm-hmm. if we can respond. And we did. We did almost nothing else for 10 days. And we wrote a bunch of background papers. Um, I remember I wrote one about education uh, and what could be done to serve the interests of less well-off and working-class people in the school system. Um, and that, that really did it for me. I thought, oh, wow, I can do this as an economist. And then I just never turned back. That was it. And, and give, give us an example of one of the questions that King was asking. Well, one of the questions was about education, mm-hmm. um, how to pursue the objective of equality of educational opportunity, what that might mean. Uh, and um, uh, another, another question was about reparations. Uh, that is, um, uh, what would be the mag- appropriate magnitude of reparations to people of color, color in America, particularly former slaves? Uh, and then, interestingly, uh, he asked, um, what are other examples in which there have been major subsidies or handouts to particular groups, and what were the magnitude mm-hmm. of those? Uh, and so we looked at all kinds of m- massive payments, subsidies to railroads and so on. Uh, another had to do with the, um, the uh, uh, white flight from the central part of the city and the suburbanization of jobs. Uh, and I forget the others, uh, yeah. but it was, it was a, I mean, I learned more in that 10 days than I think I learned in grad school. Looking at your career, I think it's fair to say that you are a reformist within economics. You, you, you want to uh, get, you want to be a practicing economist, but you want to think about the problems that are not being addressed. And, and so what the story you're telling provides a link because uh, both your background, obviously, but, but also that, that an activist, a brilliant uh, activist, Dr. King, was 
asking you questions that came out of his activism, and you were saying, or you were finding, economics couldn't give you the answers. Yeah. Um, that uh, I think reformist is, um, uh, I'm not exactly sure it's right, because certainly in the 70s, uh, I decided that this, I mean, I was teaching uh, the, uh, the, what's called the Advanced Microeconomics course for grad students. And that's kind of the citadel of the conventional wisdom in economics. And I, um, I remember um, when I had a sabbatical and I decided I would go to the Economics Institute in Havana uh, to teach a course there on economic planning, mathematical methods for economic planning, I remember quite triumphantly, I went to the chair of the department, who was a very kind gentleman, and I, I said, um, and I'd been teaching this course for some years, and it had been regarded as quite successful because I'd actually engaged the students in some difficult mathematical tool making and tool building for them. And I said, well, that's the end. Of, I'm not going to teach any more of that, and I used a profane word. I'm not teaching any more of that, uh, and um, I'm going to do something else. And in a way, that actually happened. Uh, I, when I came back, I started teaching courses on inequality, um, and I had uh, um, so I'd, I'd made a turn. But I, I really did reject the standard models that I had been teaching that were part of the discipline. Uh, I, uh, I taught a lot about Marxian economics. Um, partly as a process whereby I could learn a lot more about the uh, insights of Marx. Um, and I'd, I looked at other ways of developing economic reasoning. Um, and now I think that what's happened is not so much that I reformed economics, but I think economics reformed itself. Mm. So that I'm now a lot closer to the economic, conventional economics of today than I was then because economics itself has changed so much. Uh, I like to ask my guests often how, uh, st what their suggestions are about how students should prepare to do the kind of work that you do. Uh, and uh, let's, let's talk about that because the, when, when you look at your work, it's really interdisciplinary, it's cross-cultural, it's increasingly dealing with experiments. Talk a little about how that evolved in your career and, and what advice then that leads you to give to students. Well, um, talking to economic students, uh, about which I know the most, um, uh, I often am asked by people who want to be engaged with the world and by the way, I think the vast majority of economics grad students come to grad school with some kind of a passion, some kind of curiosity about something, and, uh, and wanting to better the world. Uh, uh, so I think the, uh, and then the question is, well, how do you do that, and how do you do that and do good research? Um, well, the, the first thing uh, that you have to learn as a, as a young researcher is a piece of research that's going to be published in a good journal isn't going to deal with the whole problem. It's going to deal with a little piece of it, and there's nothing wrong with that. And I would never criticize the journals for requiring us in publishing our papers to do a very careful job sometimes on very narrow topics. Um, the problem when you're that age uh, is that uh, the thing you'd really like to be doing is writing a book. 
uh, a book which lays out some kind of argument and so on. And uh, the time will come for that. You can do it. Um, I did it uh, long before I had tenure. Uh, but uh, that was at a time when the job market was really good and people weren't as scared about <laughs> what you're doing. But um, learning some good research tools, learning how to define a research problem, uh, that's something which people think it's somehow too narrow. Well, it, I'm sorry, it's not too narrow. You're part of a whole process and it accumulates. And it's fantastic what's happened in the last 30 or 40 years in economics because a lot of just hard work, paper by paper, it didn't look like it added up to much. But then when you look at 30 years, the whole profession has changed and um, in terms of how it sees the basics, like what are we like as people? How do we describe us? How do we interact in society? These are all things that have changed now in how, how economics is done. Unfortunately, the public perception of economics is still, uh, it's basically about supply and demand and money and that kind of thing, but we've really moved on. And, and is... Is interdisciplinary work the key to the changes that are going on within economics itself? No, it's interesting, Harry. What I think happened was in economics, some changes took place uh, for, uh, I don't mean any disrespect, but for rather nerdy reasons. I mean, people were just pursuing their research and it turned out that things didn't fit right and so we had to make these adjustments. I'll explain what I mean about that in a minute. But the changes in economics led to a description of the economy which was incomplete without interdisciplinary input. So the interdisciplinarity was a consequence of the changes in economics, not a cause of it. Now, here's an example. One of the things that economists now recognize is that if you and I have a contract, for example, suppose you employ me to do a job. Well, uh, you can require that I come on time. You can even require that I obey your instructions. Uh, but there's no way in the world that you can write a contract about exactly what I'm supposed to do, uh, unless I happen to be doing a very routine job. But if I'm, for example, caring for your kids or doing scientific research or waiting on tables in your restaurant or just about any other of the massive number of jobs in the service economy, you can't write down what I'm supposed to do. You've got to get me to do it some other way. Now, our description of that in economics is the contract is incomplete. It's incomplete because you have to pay me and I have to show up. That's not what's going to make profits for you. What's going to make profits for you is me doing something. Now, now why does that get interdisciplinarity on the table? Well, if the contract was complete, if you had essentially written down exactly what I had to do, if I didn't do it, you wouldn't pay me. Uh, and uh, so... Uh, there was, the, or if you had payment, you could even get my wages back by going to court. Uh, now, uh, if the contract's incomplete, what do you have to hope? You have to hope one of two things. One is that I have a work ethic which leads me to, as a matter of pride or commitment or my obligation to you to do a good job. So my morality, my social norms become important to you because you can't get me to work otherwise because you can't force me to do it. The only other thing that matters is your power over me, which you may have because actually it's a pretty good job you gave me. And if you fire me, I'm out of luck. I'm on the street, and unlike the models of supply and demand, where the curves always cross, uh, that what that means, the curves cross, is it means supply equals demand. What that means to me, who you just fired, is I can walk across the street and get a job, equivalent job somewhere else. 
Now, if I can do that, <laughs> make my day. I don't care, Harry. Fire me. I'm going across the street, right? So you get the problem. Mm -hmm. uh, now, so how, how can you avoid that? You better pay me more than I can get in my next job. Uh, or there'd better be some unemployment, so maybe I won't get another job for a while. Uh, that means you're going to have some power over me. And the, the only way you get me to work is either if I want to do it for moral reasons or if I'm scared of getting fired or some combination of the two. Immediately, you get on the table social norms, which means sociology. You get the exercise of power, which means political science. So you, you immediately get Durkheim on the table and you get the great political scientists who've studied power like Robert Dahl. They're included now. Uh, and notice... This is not inter interdisciplinarity because I'm interested in something that sociologists mm. study. It's not because I think we should be broader and I should be studying things that uh, other disciplines study. What I'm saying is that if you want to be a good economist, you'd better learn some sociology and some political science because modern economic, microeconomic theory as taught in grad schools is about strategic interactions in which social norms and the exercise of power is an intrinsic part of the story. In, in uh, uh, philosophy of theory, let's say, you propose a theory that simplifies, that makes certain assumptions, that clarifies a particular part of the universe. And what you're suggesting now is that as the economy changes, that econ economics has had to adapt because the power of its theory is being reduced. Is that a fair uh, restatement? I think that's right. But I don't think that economics changed because the economy changed. Mm. Uh, I think the, 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 the economics that we had really from uh, the, most of the past century, the, the microeconomics, was simply, uh, I mean, uh, people criticize it because it's too simple and they criticize it because it's too mathematical. I don't agree with either of those things. I criticize it because it was wrong. Uh, that is, it was the wrong benchmark, the wrong abstractions, the wrong simplifications that lead us away from understanding things. Because of the assumption, for example, that supply always equals demand, because of the assumption that you can get me to work just by writing a contract and so on, those are fundamentally wrong assumptions about how, how markets work. Now, so, uh, uh, now, of course, the economy is changing, and it's a good thing that, that economics has also changed because the old models, they might have worked okay in factories where you could regulate my speed by the speed of the assembly line or something like that. But they don't work at all in the examples that I gave whereby the quality of the job well done is very hard to define. For example, if I'm caring for your kids or if I'm an elementary school teacher uh, and so on. So the, true, the economy is changing. And fortunately, I think economics is going to keep up because it's changing too in terms of the way we see our microeconomic theory. Uh, your book, uh, The Moral Economy, which I can show to our audience, uh, in reading it, that's what led me to find a word to describe you because you are grappling with some of the concepts and showing, as you just did with regard to contracts, that they are inadequate in... Uh, helping us understand uh, the richness of the environment in which 
the economy operates. Yeah, that's right. And so what what also emerges in this book is a sort of a uh, a dual way of looking at the world. One in terms of incentives, which fits the traditional model, and for which there are well developed concepts in economics. But on the other hand, other uh, factors, particularly social norms, that uh, uh, focus on things like uh, equality, reciprocity, altruism, and so on. Talk a little about that, because what you're saying is we economists assume that incentives dealt with it all. But in fact, what this book shows is that there is a crowding out of these other virtues. Uh, that's right. Or uh, in many cases, there is that crowding out. Yeah. I want to tell you a story about that book because I know you're interested in how, yeah. how people do their work. Um, I started that book in 1989. Uh, I must have started it before then because the first paper I gave summarizing the content of this book was in 1989. I remember very well. It was in the philosophy department in, uh, in the University College London. And at the time, I, uh, the paper was well-received, but I wasn't happy with it. I didn't think it was very convincing. And uh, so in the intervening decades, uh, I engaged in doing some experiments on human behavior, and a, a lot of other people much better at experiments than I did the same. And so there was an accumulation of evidence. And at the same time, I decided that some of the philosophical foundations that I had used in the paper uh, weren't really very adequate. And so I, um, for example, I intensively read Machiavelli, from whom I learned a great deal. I was able to read him in Italian because I was at the time teaching in, uh, in Italy. Uh, so uh, that process just went on for a long time until I was finally happy with the, um, the outcome. But a, an, an important intervening step was the following, and I'd like to convey this uh, again to, uh, to those of you who are listening, who are students or young researchers. Um, I didn't know what tools I would need to, uh, to write that book. I knew I had a question, and the question is, how do our preferences and values change as a result of the economic uh, environment in which we function? Now, Shortly after I had that kind of false start in London, I started to think, well, who could help me with that? And the first idea I had was, well, you know, I think our values are a little bit like our accents. They're things that we acquire at a young age. Uh, but like our accents, if we work at it, we can change them too. But we probably don't uh, that much. Uh, and I knew that their study of language use uh, was very highly advanced and quantitative, so I reached out to a bunch of scholars in sociolinguistics uh, to see what I could learn from them. And the other thing I thought was, I wondered if there wasn't an analogy to uh, uh, biological evolution, that is, the way particular traits are favored through higher fitness. I wondered if there wasn't a cultural analogy to that. And so I uh, reached out. These are people I didn't know. I just wrote letters. That's back in the days where we wrote letters. I wrote letters to uh, some, uh, some biologists in the field of population genetics and some others who were applying those models in anthropology. Uh, now notice, I didn't ask a single economist because I didn't think there was an answer in economics because I knew the field 
pretty well. But I did think I might find answers elsewhere. And sure enough, it worked out. The, the sociolinguistics part didn't pan out very well, but the biology part and the anthropology became really important in my being able to establish, uh, a, an, a, I think, a basic understanding of the following. It's possible, and I think likely, that human beings evolved not simply culturally, but also genetically with a predisposition to be altruistic towards others. Now, that's a shocking statement because among biologists, it was thought to be impossible because, of course, the survival of the fittest means the survival of the selfish, according to most biologists. So I had to do some hard work in biology, and I spent a decade and a half learning population genetics, studying natural selection, developing mathematical models of the process, and developing a way of understanding natural selection in which it's quite likely, and I think given the evidence, uh, probable, uh, that humans developed a genetic predisposition towards, as I say, generous, ethical, and altruistic behavior. Um, now that brings me back to this book. Once I had done that, uh, I did most of that work with Herbert Gintis, but also with other uh, collaborators. Um, I asked myself, well, if that's really true, shouldn't we go back and rethink economics? Uh, and um, there's a field in economics called behavioral economics, which has um, <clears throat> uh, demonstrated uh, uh, using behavioral experiments that people probably really are generous and when, when it comes to dividing up real money and so on. And it's kind of a boutique field, if you know what I mean. It's ghettoized, and students can take it if they want, and it's kind of, it's cool, but it's not really central. And I thought, now, wait a minute. Uh, if that's really what people are like, then economics has got to change a lot, and not just some field over there on the side. Uh, a paradigm in the social sciences has to answer questions about what are we like, what is society like, how do we interact? You know, different disciplines will do it differently, but if something fundamental about how what we're like has changed, well, then it probably has ramifications. And so then I, I decided what I would do, as I've already said, I don't think I'm that great a behavioral economist. I'm not very good at designing experiments. Uh, but what I thought I might do is see, well, suppose those results were true and taken on board. How would economics look different? How would ordinary microeconomics, uh, public economics, labor economics, international trade, history, philosophy and economics, how would all of that change? So that's basically the last couple of decades. That's been what, what uh, I have done with a rather large research team of very talented collaborators. And this book is an example of that, trying to say, okay, let's think again about incentives. Uh, and what we show in the book is that uh, incentives are, of course, essential to running a modern economy, uh, but in many circumstances, they don't work very well. And the reason why they don't work well is um, if you imagine you've got a problem and you want people to do the right thing. Uh, uh, say, for example, that uh, uh, parents are coming late to pick up their kids at a daycare center. And uh, now you could you know, you could jawbone them and say, uh, well, come on, you ought to show up. Uh, and, uh, or you could find them if they don't show up on time. And so a lot of things you could do. Uh, now, interestingly, um, a couple of economists um, who uh, uh, tried an experiment um, in Haifa, Israel, 
in which uh, parents were coming late to pick up their kids. It was a chain of daycares. Uh, there were 13 of them. And um, they, uh, so they decided what they would do is they would impose a fine. And because this would be an experiment, they imposed a fine in half of the schools, half the daycare centers, and not in the others. So that, the others would be the control group. And what they found is really, I mean, they just put a notice on the door and said, as of uh, um, uh, tomorrow, if you come late, uh, you're going to be fined a certain amount. And uh, no explanation was given, but I guess the parents understood. And then they had recorded how many people were coming late at all these daycare centers, and they imposed this fine, and then they recorded what happened. Well, I mean, I wouldn't be telling you this if what happened is what they thought would happen, which is they would stop coming late. In the, in the daycare centers in which the fine was imposed, the number of people coming late doubled. Where the fine was imposed, the number of people coming late doubled. In the, other, in the, in the control group, nothing happened. So how do you interpret that? Why did the fine make people come later? Well, there are a lot of possible ways to interpret this, but the most parsimonious, I think, is very simple, which is if you put a price on something... People say, oh, I can buy it. Lateness is a commodity I can, I can buy. I'll step right up and buy some if it's convenient for me. Uh, now, of course, you may think, well, okay, if, they, if they'd charged $100 for coming late, they probably would have come on time. Of course they would have. Uh, but that's beside the point. What, there's, of course, some fine that will get them to shape up. But a fine of a normal amount uh, of the type that they did actually had the effect of changing the type of problem it was. It was no longer a problem like shopping, in which it's perfectly okay to try to get a good deal. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it was no longer a problem like dealing with your neighbor or your family, in which there's some moral or ethical reason that goes into you should try to be respectful and so on. It turned it into, by putting a price on it, it turned it into a shopping problem. Do the best you can according to the dollars and cents dimension. And for some people, it was worth it to come late. But, I mean, I... I know some people, uh, neither you nor I would ever do this, but I know people who routinely park illegally and they say, hey, it's only $25. Uh, so that's the price of parking illegally. And once it's seen as a price, you have no moral obligation as long as you're willing to pay the ticket. One of the things I wanted to point out in your book, which relates to what you're talking about, is that you go through the history of economic thinking in defining incentives. And what again and again you show is there was a nugget of truth in what the, the great thinker said, and then it was ignored, basically. And uh, so, so in the book, you were taking these assumptions. For example, what you dis discussed, separability, the notion that you could separate or you're just doing this. Uh, to use incentives, and it doesn't affect, you know, the moral issues. So, so it's really challenging traditional theory and informing it with uh, careful thinking about what the implications are of particular pieces of the theory. That's right. And, uh, you know, you, you, you look at the great economists and you think, now, wait a minute. Did they really get it that wrong? Were they really so stupid as to think that we respond to incentives, but there are not other kinds of reasons for our behavior? Um, uh, no, of course they were not that stupid. Uh, Adam Smith is well known to have written The Wealth of Nations, but he also wrote The Theory of Moral Sentiments. Uh, 
Um, Machiavelli, uh, who's often quoted as if people are just selfish and uh, or wicked, as he called them, uh, goes on and on about the essential role of social norms and values in good governance. Um, so if you, if you read carefully what they're saying, uh, these are wise, wise people uh, who understand that incentives play an important mm -hmm. role, but also social norms, and we have to think of the two of them together. What they missed was the fact that you can't separate the two as if you can, you have a dial over here and you can crank up the incentives a little bit. And then you might also have religion over here and crank up people's social norms and so on. Uh, it's as if the two dials aren't connected. But it turns out if you turn this dial up too much, you're going to diminish some of the importance of the social preferences and ethical reasoning in some cases. Um, now, I want to say there's a whole lot of jobs in the modern economy that only work because people are paid well to do them because people have no reason to do them otherwise. Uh, that's unfortunate. It's too bad that our economy has a lot of jobs which people don't have an engagement with. But I don't mean to suggest that we shouldn't use incentives or we can dispense with them. Of course we cannot. But we should understand that when incentives are used in a way that either dominates a person or exploits them, you're going to get a negative reaction if the person has some freedom to choose a negative reaction. And we see that in the experiments and we see it in real life. You are involved in helping to lead a project which is trying to uh, transform economics uh, with a new curriculum which is available online universal, universally. Talk a little about that. Well, this is a project that uh, started, um, it's probably influenced by the 2008 financial crisis, but it had been brewing in the minds of a lot of us for a, a while. And uh, it was <clears throat> the, uh, someone initially called it uh, the project Economics as if the last 30 years had happened. Uh, now, it wasn't just the last 30 years of the economy. It was the last 30 years of economics. Um, we began to, to notice that what was going on in the intro classrooms in, you know, Ec 10 had nothing to do with what we were teaching our grad students. And it had nothing to do with how we were talking amongst each other researchers about the kind of economics that we do and think about. Um, so the intro courses were teaching uh, extraordinarily out of date, uh, not up to the frontiers of economics kind of reasoning. Um, and uh, this happens from time to time. Uh, the great uh, physicist Feynman uh, in the 60s when he was teaching at Caltech, he had the same realization, which is that you know, uh, the physics students then, they wanted to learn about um, uh, uh, things about uh, nuclear energy. They wanted to learn about all the, the frontiers of physics. And what were they getting? Levers and, and uh, you know, inclined planes and all kinds of stuff like that. And maybe at the end of a course or at the late in your major, you might get something about modern physics. Uh, well, what Feynman decided to do is let's put the new stuff in the front of the book instead of the back of the book. Um, and, uh, and we thought, yeah, why don't we do that? Why don't we, why don't we give the undergrads, obviously, a much simplified introductory version to what we now teach our PhD students? Um, and uh, so that was our first idea, that, that we, we should do that. And the second thing is the economics of today in the intro classroom appears to have almost nothing to do with why the students are there in the first place. Listen to this. 
Around the world, we're a global organization. Around the world, we have done over and over again, uh, uh, we go to a classroom of people who, it's their first course in economics, and before anything, before we say anything, we say, please take out a piece of paper and write on the paper, what do you think economists should, what issues should economists be addressing today? I should have brought it here, Harry, because we make word clouds of these, and the size of the font is indicating how common the word is used. Uh, well, the first time we did this, uh, we were amazed. It was at University College in London. Uh, and these were, as I say, first-year students, never heard about economics. And the word inequality is this big in the word cloud. And then there is uh, uh, climate change. Uh, and then there's other words like instability. Uh, interestingly, this is 19, uh, this is 2016. Uh, this big was the word Donald Trump, uh, who the students, the beginning students thought was an economic problem that would have to be addressed. Uh, when we did it later, the students uh, there in UK were, would write Brexit as a re really big one. But around the world, Inequality is giant in these word clouds, and it's very, very similar wherever you go. Uh, now, when we mentioned this to some people, they said, well, yeah, a bunch of left-of-center students, that's what you got there. So we tried it once at the Bank of England. Uh, the, the head of this project, Wendy Carlin, a professor at UCL, uh, regularly goes to the Bank of England. She's an advisor to uh, parts of the British government, and... Um, uh, so she was going to give a talk to the incoming recruits. There are almost 100 of them, almost all of them successful economics graduates who had decided to go on and finance. So she did the same thing with them. And if I showed you that word cloud, you would not be able to pick it out. Same thing, inequality this big, climate change, and so on. Um, uh, we did it at the Central Bank and Treasury in Wellington, New Zealand. And we got the same answer with 120 professional economists in the business of finance. That's what people think economics should be doing. Do you find that in the textbooks? Well, maybe in chapter 34, which you never get to, they say it's good reading for the beach. Um, so in our, in, our, in our book, we start with, here's what's going on in the world. And we, the, uh, we look at uh, what we call the capitalist revolution, this extraordinary thing that happened when capitalism occurred, which is income per capita in the world had been going along like this, for almost a thousand years in which we have data. And it went almost vertical. Uh, it looks vertical in a graph. In the UK, after that, some other places, Japan, finally belatedly India and China. We call that the capitalist revolution and we think that's associated with these countries essentially uh, experiencing what we call the capitalist revolution. But that's also what made the world highly unequal between the countries that were rich and poor. And also, that's what, and we present evidence on uh, climate change, that's what now imperils the entire, uh, uh, entire humanity because of climate change. That's what I get in the first chapter. Now, notice what's going to happen. If you put that stuff in the first chapter, you're going to have to change the rest of the book because you can't just be teaching them supply and demand and then expect that they're going to understand why capitalism took off, why our climate is endangered, why the world is so unequal, and so on. So uh, uh, let's uh, give our audience the URL, uh, core-econ, E-C-O-N, dot org. And there's an online textbook 
there's a curriculum, and there seems to be a lively discussion about issues emerging in newspaper articles and so on. Uh, so this seems uh, to suggest that the, the young people, uh, maybe people in general, are more attuned to the problems we need to confront. But the institution of economics departments, not necessarily individually, are not adapting, and the new technology provides a way to put something out there that everybody can reach that can help address this problem. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's been extraordinary how this thing has taken off. I mean, I wish I had my phone on me. I would just, I'd, I would show you that you can get it on your phone, you can get it on any device, uh, and people are doing it all around the world. And, and we're getting, I mean, just recent, just two days ago, uh, a person from Georgia wants to translate it into Georgian. It's being translated into Farsi. And you name the language, it's happening. Uh, and uh, and uh, because it's online, it's digital. Uh, you can do adaptations. Um, now, what absolutely shocked us was that this this new intro course almost immediately displaced the standard intro course at the top economics departments in Europe, at University College London, at the Toulouse School of Economics, at Sciences Po in, in, uh, in Paris, Humboldt University in Berlin. They went over almost instantly. We weren't even ready. Uh, they were just using a beta version that was online, and they, and they went for it. And that suggests that economics is ready to change. Uh, um, but And it's also, I think, a lot of the... I mean, one of the reasons why we've been successful is that... This is a very unusual organization. Um, uh, it's a global collaboration of researchers from all over the world who have contributed content. A small editorial group has given it a common voice. Uh, and uh, nobody's been paid. Uh, none of the content providers have been paid. It's a, it's a collaborative, it's a cooperative <laughs> organization. Obviously, we had to pay to build a good platform for it. Check it out. It's an outstanding platform. Uh, and uh, we had help from designers in Bangalore. The platform is developed in a very uh, outstanding group in Cape Town. Uh, and, uh, and we have a very small staff, one full-time member of the staff, uh, and it's a huge uh, volunteer organization. So there's a lesson there. What it means is, as we move into the modern economy of knowledge creation and distribution, maybe we should think about different ways of organizing our production. That is, that's what we teach in part of the curriculum. There are different ways of organizing how we do things. And it occurred to us, well, we're an example. <laughs> we're an example because we have no, uh, uh, that is, we have this available free uh, online. It's a Creative Commons license because we don't believe that knowledge should be uh, a commodity. Uh, and um, so we're actually, we belatedly realized, oh, we're doing the economics that we're teaching. Uh, one, one final question requiring a very short answer because our time is out. So that middle schooler in India asking his mother, what's the difference here? Why aren't, you know, why is there so much poverty? One element of your journey, your intellectual journey, that stands out to you for answering that question over time in your own way. Well, I think I've been fortunate in having teachers who were uh, interested in history, 
uh, and taught me the importance of institutions. It's an important part of modern economics today. It has roots in the economics of Karl Marx and Adam Smith. Uh, those are the people who have given me the tools to understand now a little better why India was then so poor compared to America and why India is rapidly changing now along with China, Vietnam, and some other countries. So I've been very fortunate to live in this period of time and to have teachers who have allowed me to take that route. Um, and uh, I can't say I have a good answer, but I have a better answer than my mom had. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Sam, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming to the campus, delivering the Weinstock Lecture, and being on our program. Thank you very much, Harry. And thank you very much for joining us for this conversation with history. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.